Uh, the word hypocrisy. Just the text happens to fall, you know, kind of at the apex here of election season, if we can call it that. And uh, we hear the word hypocrisy thrown around quite a bit. It comes from the Greek word hypocrites, which the general popular definition or understanding of a hypocrite means saying one thing and doing another. When a multitude of the biggest named celebrity Christians have been found out that they've been engaged in lifestyles of drugs and bathhouses and homosexual dalliances and serial fornication, the H word is appropriately and very easily played. There those pastors stand week after week sanctimoniously decrying the wickedness of sin to tens of thousands, sometimes to hundreds of thousands of listening hungry souls all the while embracing the very things that they have been standing in their pulpits and through the airwaves preaching hellfire and brimstone against. Things that they have built their ministries on with thousands upon thousands of followers. That is hypocrisy for sure. But hypocrisy has a broader range of meaning than simply saying one thing and doing another. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were masters of it. The last time that we were together, which I think was 1998, was it? So it seems like that, I don't know. Jesus had excoriated the most educated, arguably the most spiritual, the most religious people of his day, putting them in their place. They raised hypocrisy to new heights, not simply saying one thing and doing another, but by paying lip service to the holiness of God. Peering into the mind of the Pharisee, if I could, as he stands there before God, he would say something like this, I suppose, The reason, O Lord, that we are such sticklers on every jot and tittle of the law, O God Almighty, is because you and you alone are worthy of such devotion. There is none greater than you, and you, O Lord, is why we breathe. And it sounded good. It even looked good, but it was all a scam. (laughs) It was all a scam. While they were flashing their holy garments for the crowds and raising their hands in great and lengthy prayers, they were conniving on how to manipulate the decrees of God to gain advantage over the crowds and to increase their personal comfort, all the yet while looking so pious and so holy, and so devoted to God, and worse, believing that they actually were. Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 7, verse 10, Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, 
But don't get fixated on that one example because it's only one example. It's just an illustration that Jesus uses. And he says that by following up with, and you do many things such as that. Not just that. Just one example. Let me give you some background to this passage because it's been such a long time since we've been there. You may remember that the Pharisees were up in arms as they were good at doing because the disciples sat down to eat with Jesus and they began eating without washing their hands. The implication was that they had defiled God's holiness by ignoring this important letter of the law. The problem was there is no mandate for hand washing before eating. It wasn't part of the ceremonial law of God passed on by God in the Torah to his people that must be kept. It was a tradition that had been created by the Pharisees to wash off any cooties, perchance, really dating myself. Right? When I was in grammar school, if you touched a girl and you didn't have your cootie shot, you had to have a buddy, or if you were desperate, you could give yourself two knuckle things and you pinch your arm and twist it and get your cootie shot in case you touched, God forbid, a girl. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, the Pharisees, you see, viewed the Gentiles that way. And so if you happen to come in contact with a Gentile, you were defiled. And so they viewed the disciples as violating... God's holiness by not washing off the cooties before they ate. But the fact is that centuries before, God addresses the very spirit of the issue. It comes from David. There's many examples I could use, but I'm going to use the one from David in Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So the Pharisees were meticulous to obey and to impose their handmade laws, but when faced with a genuine law of God, namely honor your father and your mother, which, by the way, had everything to do with taking care of one's aging parents, the Pharisees blew off the actual commandment of God, by creating their own commandment, a tradition called, in this case, Korban. And what it did, what did was it sheltered their money from being spent on their God-given responsibility to take care of their aging parents. Well, gosh, you know, I'm sorry, we'd really love to help you out, but you know that money that we had aside, that's Korban, it's devoted to God, Sorry. And Jesus adds, many such things you do. These are the people for whom Jesus consistently has no tolerance. So the Pharisees have laid their public accusation against the disciples. And Jesus needs to do some theology cleansing for the crowds who heard all this. Verse 14 after Jesus called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. 
There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the, out of, out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus' words explain the answer to the very question which the Pharisees had asked. But note, Jesus called the crowd away to himself. Jesus did not answer the Pharisees, the dishonest doubters, which I talked about the last time we were together. But he knew that in the gathered masses there would be those who were honest doubters, those who were being drawn by the Spirit, even as Nicodemus, himself a Pharisee, had been drawn and could learn from Jesus' answer to a question that they hadn't even asked. So God uses the accusation of the Pharisees to basically create a teachable moment for those whom he's drawing to himself. For as John records in his Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44, in the mystery of God, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And we really need to remind ourselves that this is still a reality today. Nothing has changed. There are people that God has marked out for salvation and when confronted with the truth, they will have ears to hear. So there you are, you're at the water cooler, the proverbial water cooler where conversation used to take place before social media. And Joe Know-it-all happens to come up while you're there and he loves throwing in your face the latest trump catastrophe. Of course, tying Trump's ridiculousness into the Christian faith. If it's just you and Joe at the cooler, maybe one of the most spiritual things you could say to him is, whatever, and just walk away. On the other hand, if there happens to be another colleague within earshot, it might be used of God to engage the fool at the cooler for the sake of the one listening. And that was always my motive when I was writing for the newspapers and when I was engaging some of the buffoons on the radio who would call in dying to share their ignorance with me. My goal was not to convince the unconvincible or the recalcitrant antagonist. My goal was to convince the honest doubter or at least move them closer to a godly position on whatever it was. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus' words in the presence of the Pharisees were absolutely scandalous. Jesus, in that one brief statement, appears, appears to turn the holiness code of Judaism, the whole system, upside down, right on its head. And don't the Pharisees know it? Remember, the Pharisees were the masters of the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament well. And they knew well the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 12. An interesting interchange there between Haggai, inspired by God. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, 
and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, uh, no. Well, then Haggai said, okay, um, maybe it works the other way. If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. So apparently, holiness can't be transmitted. In other words, you can't can't go up to some holy person and rub their head, and boom, you're going to be made holy. But on the other side of it, if you happen to come in contact, if you will, with unholiness, it will be transmitted to you. Well, in the context of Haggai, The whole point was God was disgusted with his people who were living a life of relative ease and luxury. It's the distinct language of Haggai 1. And they were pounding the pavement and they were putting in overtime, so to speak, to make all the extra money they needed to feather their nests to the hills while the express command of God to rebuild his house laid there in ruins. What was the Pharisees' application of all this? Well, the Pharisees' application was, if you happen to defile yourself by stepping foot on Gentile soil or brushing up against a Gentile while you're in the marketplace or a scad marketplace or a scad of other things that defile, you need to undefile yourself before you eat. Hence, the hand washing. You see, the Pharisees, which they were adept at, totally missed the rebuke of the pseudo-holy people of Haggai's day. But the disciples didn't cleanse themselves. And this so-called teacher of all things Jewish, namely Jesus, he went along with it, which is the pretense of why the Pharisees wanted Jesus gone. But the Pharisees were never concerned about the one that mattered. They were not concerned for the holiness of God. They were only concerned about appearance, power, prestige, and personal comfort. If the Pharisees were seeking the Lord, they would have seen that all of the holiness laws were only ever meant to underscore their total inadequacy in in being able to satisfy a holy God. This was not a new thought to them. As the proud teachers and experts of the law of God, if there was any book of the Old Testament that they knew exceedingly well, so well even as to memorize it, it was the book of Isaiah. And whoo, doesn't Isaiah let loose? Let's look at it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 17. God speaking, imagine this. Remember, this is a very religious people. They're going through all emotions, doing all the letters of the law, everything else. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Huh? Well, wait, wait, but what do you mean you told us to do these things? 
when you come to appear before me? Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate... (laughs) Oh, God, he's always so patient and understanding and warm and fussy. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, O God Almighty, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves. And of course, he's not talking about just soap and water. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Meaning what? Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease. Stop doing what is evil and learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. The religion of the Pharisees was one of great pomp and circumstance with no heart for God. Religious to the hilt and living like hell. Back to King David in Psalm 51. King David has finally been wrecked by the breaking through of God's Spirit. And again, from Psalm 51, he writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If the Pharisees had been seeking the Lord, their inadequacies would have been blessed. They would have been blessed by the Spirit of God leading them to the awesome promise of that coming only adequate one who could and would satisfy the holiness of God once and for all. Now, why have I spent so much time on the Pharisees this morning? It is because Pharisaism has not passed away with the centuries. We just have to look past fancy outdated garments Forget the elaborate ceremonies and the great speeches in the marketplace to the heart of the matter, which Jesus already nailed earlier in this chapter. Here is the core of Pharisaism. You honor the Lord with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Now, in the interest of faith's plumb lines, which we developed several months ago, there are 15 or 16 different sound bites that we developed looking back over 25 years of faith here. And these are sort of the, the, the core values, if you will, of faith, the non-negotiables of what makes this church this church. Number eight of those plumb lines says, we seek to make disciples 
more so than simply tallying mere decisions, meaning people getting, you know, getting people to raise their hand and say, I, I believe in the Lord. That's it. Plumb line number 15 says the church exists to equip believers to proclaim in word and deed the kingdom of God. So in that spirit now, I'm going to continue to the end of this message with the nuts and bolts, down-to-earth challenge about Pharisaism in the church of Jesus Christ today. What provoked this thought was a week or two ago, I happened to read an article by the Gospel Coalition. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of bloggers out there. You know, everybody's got an opinion and everything else. But the Gospel Coalition is an organization. The president is Dr. Donald A. Carson, former professor of mine, Um, one of the most brilliant and godly men that I have ever seen, known, or had the privilege of sitting under. And the, the, the people who are superintending the Gospel Coalition and all are just stellar, reliable, biblically dedicated, committed people. All that is to say, this is a commercial, that if you are following one, you know, thing on Facebook or whatever, the Gospel Coalition is worthy of your consideration. Well, this article happens to be by a name named uh, Barton Gingrich. It was an article that was addressing the issue of the embrace of sexual sin on the part of evangelical millennials. And that's what caught my attention. And you say evangelical millennials, what is that? Millennials are considered those people who are coming of age and came of age in the 2000s, meaning basically people who were born from 1980, you know, on forward, but coming of age in the 2000s. I want to qualify what the rest of this article says and says, although this is directed, and I understand why, at evangelical millennials, what this article says is not restricted at all to simply the millennials. Unfortunately, Tim Keller, who is a member of the Gospel Coalition, again, one of the few, unfortunately, not that he saw celebrity pastors out there, who is just a stellar man whose writings are actually worth reading. He is the pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And he's quoted in this article as lamenting the fact that the exhortations concerning sexual sin in the Church of Christ have eased off. Quoting him, he says himself, we're not doing well on the sex side. He confessed, talking about his church. Keller said, we're just like the rest of the city. He said, if I preach on sexual ethics, everybody gets real quiet. Similarly, the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy discovered that 80%, not 18, 80, 80% of unmarried evangelicals between the ages of 18 and 29 had engaged in sex. Using a more stringent definition even of what an evangelical is, The National Association of Evangelicals recently reported that 44% of millennial evangelicals had sex outside of marriage. Thanks to the public liturgy of Hollywood and our own human inclinations, 
Fornication has been normalized and pose a massive obstacle to effective pastoral ministry. More disturbingly, many young evangelicals are trying to loosen the standards of the moral law to fit their desire to become sexually active before committing to marriage. Some are direct, telling the church to shut up and stay out of their sex lives. Young evangelicals must choose their master right now. Too many follow their appetites and desires. They are bending God's own standards to satiate their libido. Perhaps fear and repentance would not be amiss here. Numerous portions of sacred scripture indicate that sexuality expresses God's character as carried out in his image bearers. And the cost of trespassing providential limits is too high. The article ends with, Beware your acceptable sins. They are the ones that will kill you. When a society caves in to one particular sin and twists the gospel to defend it, oh my heavens, if there is a mark of the church of Jesus Christ today, it is exactly that. Think about homosexuality, transgenderism, fornication, living together, sexuality, all of it. When a society caves in to one particular sin and then twists the gospel to defend it, that vice will become a canker on the soul and will eventually bring it to ruin. Over the years, I have witnessed the change in culture and in Christendom firsthand, right in my office. And I know Pastor Brent has too, Pastor Matt has, Janet has, Dory has, and anyone who is in a helping role to other Christians, you will know full well of what I am speaking. Twenty years ago, let's go back twenty years, when a couple would come into my office for premarital counseling, after I took pains to explain the real purpose of a Christian wedding and that it means that you can expect God's blessing upon it and upon your lives, somewhere along the line, pretty soon, rather than later, I would drop the bomb. So, are you guys sleeping together? the look of pure mortification and embarrassment, thank God, was prevalent. That was 20 years ago. 15 to 20 years later now, there have been times when I'm not even the one to bring it up because it is mentioned in passing Oh, yeah, we're living together. Yeah, yeah, we're going to, yeah, 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 wink, wink, of course, yeah. And it's offered as if to say, is that a problem? 
And I'm not talking about ignorant people off the street. I'm talking about people raised in the church and people who have been under my pulpit preaching for years. And on more than one occasion, afterwards I've said to God, God, I am so sorry. I don't know. I have failed you somehow. And it reminds me of those horrific words of Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. The first part of that verse says, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. The Holy Church of Jesus Christ. Young person, and again, not so young person. Believe me, I understand and I honestly sympathize. I really do sympathize with the multitude of privacy options that one has today to express their sexuality in the shadows in ways that are displeasing to the Lord God on high. But the standard has not changed even if the culture and your Christian friends live as if it has. And okay, and only the Lord really knows this at the end of the day, if you are a true Christian, for sure, you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, as it were. But if you think that gives you license to ignore God's principles for life and godliness without consequence, you are not reading your Bibles and you have not been listening in here. Let me give the rest of Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, direct causal phrase because of the lack even of embarrassment they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them they shall be cast down says the Lord the scourge of hypocrisy has always been a problem for God's people the opening verses of Jeremiah Say, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. I am weary of bearing them. At this point, God's children were not even obviously wayward. It's not like they were over there worshiping the Baals as they had done so many times or that they were fornicating with the godless nations or everything else. They were still looking like pretty good Old Testament people and saints. But they were just hypocritical. What were the consequences? So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. I would then explain to the couple wanting to be married that when you come before God to be married, I want to be able to bring you with the full expectation that God will bless you in all that that means. 
But honestly, if you're already blowing off the Spirit of God's leading in your lives in some of the most, most basic fundamental issues of life that He is exceedingly clear on, if you're doing that right here at the very beginning when everything is all glitter and gold, when it gets dicey in your marriage, and believe me, it will, I have no confidence that you will rely and listen to the voice of God to give you success in your married lives. And He cannot bless you when you are living in abject disobedience. The church of Jesus Christ today must abandon and must repent of the heresy that because we are in a post-resurrection epoch, call it living in the age of grace, if you will, that God's character somehow has changed, and He now winks at sin, and He laughs at indiscretion, and He's ready to bless you in spite of your sin. That's the garbage of Joel Osteen and his ilk. That is not the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning, God does not change. Well, that was a nice cherry-picked verse, Pastor. Oh, was it? Well, let's check that out. First of all, it is from the book of Hebrews, a book in the New Testament that more than any other book weaves Old Testament theology into New Testament understanding. Let's look at the context that that verse is given. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, if you don't understand what that means. There was a day... And you've got to go back a long ways, and yes, there were always hypocritical exceptions. But I wonder how many young people today even realize why wedding gowns generally almost always are white. I, seriously, I wonder how many young people have any clue. That was to make a statement that the bride was pure on her wedding day. That's what that was all about. That's what it means that the marriage bed will be undefiled. For fornicators, that is just, that encompasses everything sexually perverse that you can come up with. And adulterers, God will judge. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Here it is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The whole foundation of all that was just said, is because God is the same in a pre-resurrection epoch and in a post-resurrection epoch. His character does not change and grace does not change what he thinks and how he responds to sin. 
among his people. So we can come to church. We can come to youth group. We can go help out at the homeless shelter. We can become a big brother or a big sister to a child. We can sing for all we're worth the Christian music. But if you're a 21st century Pharisee, they are no more than new moon festivals and tainted Sabbaths. And what did God say again? They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. I listen to some of the travails of people and the challenges that they are going through. Challenges that are directly attributable to behavior. And it just boggles my mind that somehow there's this this brick wall, there's a complete disconnect between cause and effect, even for the Christian living in an age of grace. Well, well, what, well, what, what do you mean? You mean I can't act like a total moron and an idiot and defy God's laws here, 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 and here and expect everything to be rosy here, here, and here, and here? No, you can't. <laughs> okay. Why don't you go home sick? (laughs) We are all, okay, at some point or another, or many points or another, we are all hypocrites, okay? It's just a matter of degree and frequency and everything else. And as I said at the outset in the welcome this morning, Oh, when I point at you, which I haven't, you know, there are three fingers pointing right back at me, and don't I know it. But the church of Christ must do better. Not to get your stripes to get into heaven but because the one who has taken the stripes for us and from us and has done it all for us is worthy of that kind of devotion. And if you find your life perpetually frustrated, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because you're living in disobedience and God's not hearing your prayers or anything else. I'm not going there. But I'll tell you what, if you don't stop and at least examine that possibility, you're doing yourself a disservice to God and his grace and mercy be the glory. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you that the Lord's table happened to fall today for this message, O God. For indeed, truly, we are all hypocrites. We all need the cleansing blood of Jesus. And while we know that you have cleansed us of all our sins, past, present, and future, Lord God, you are so worth 
our searching you and seeking you out and pursuing holiness in honor of you for your glory and for your name and even, yes, that we might expect the good favor of your hand upon us when we live obediently. Thank you for knowing us from the inside out. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for giving us our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.